Hey everyone, Dan here. So uh, we took 4th of July off. So I uh, don't have a new WMQ&A for you this week, but what I do have is something uh, special. So uh, if you may not know that uh, if you subscribe to WMQ&A on Patreon, uh, you get a bonus podcast called Our Son Pete, in which I go through all the comic appearances of uh, my favorite mutant, Pete Wisdom, British, uh, British super spy, stop the vampire invasion from the moon. Uh, anyway, uh, if you subscribe at the $3 tier, you get access to that show. Uh, but I thought for this week as a uh, special uh, and to celebrate not having recorded last week, uh, I'd give you guys uh, another taste. Consider this our, our, uh, our HBO free preview, our Comcast Watchathon. Uh, episode. So what you're about to listen to is an episode of Our Son Pete uh, in which me and Matt, who kindly uh, guest hosted, uh, talk about Excalibur number 91, the uh, issue where the team goes to the pub. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's actually one of my favorite comics from growing up. So uh, we dig deep into that. And uh, I hope that you all enjoy and I hope that you consider uh, supporting the work that we do here uh, on the podcast because, you know, it uh, it means a lot. So, uh, thanks, and uh, enjoy. Hello and welcome to Our Son Pete, a monthly Patreon-exclusive WMQ&A bonus podcast where I, Dan Grote, read through every appearance of British mutant spymaster Peter Winston Wisdom. This month we're covering Excalibur Volume 1, Number 91, a.k.a. the one where they go to a bar... And uh, we've got a very, very special guest this month. Uh, you may know him as the co-host of the Mother Podcast, WMQ&A. You may know him as the co-host of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, but I will always know him as my brother and best friend and the guy who was reading these comics right alongside me as they were coming out. Please welcome Matt Lazowitz. Hey, everybody. I, I know you're used to exciting different guests here, but you're stuck with me this month. Ah, <laughs> uh, no one better to be stuck with. Uh, this is... This is exciting because, as I, as I mentioned, we were reading these comics when they were coming out. You know, uh, let's, let's, let's take you back to uh, November, reading the cover date now, fall of 1995. Uh, Matt, were you working at the library by this point? Oh. Yeah, yeah, I would have been working at the library. Yeah, so Matt had a part-time job at the, at the Union Library, and so on Saturdays I'd walk or ride my bike to uh, Union Center go to uh, Amazing Heroes and get my pull for the week. And I read the books somewhere at some point, head over to the library and Matt and I would catch up and kind of go through the week's books or TV. There was inevitably like a half hour of Seinfeld chat in there. Uh, X-Files. X-Files, X-Men cartoon, Friends, you know, uh, the basics. So very 90s. <laughs> yeah, e- so very exactly. 90s. Um what else? What else was in that time? The Max. Oh yeah, the Max. <laughs> um, the the state was on in the summer, so not during this particular point. Yes, but there yes. was definitely talk with the state at, at points when the state was a going active. concern. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Ask your parents, kids, if you don't know the state. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I crumble into dust yet again. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, we're actually we're, we're going to talk sketch comedy again a little bit more later and i don't know why i even put it in the notes but i did so we're gonna go with it uh tangents welcome um, <laughs> amen 
But we were we were very excited about this run of Excalibur, and particularly about Pete Wisdom. This is this is where the love affair began. Uh, Matt, people have heard me talk about this guy uh, enough, but what was the appeal for you? You know, it's just something about the snark, about the weird x filesiness of the adventures around him, because, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I was a huge X-Files fan, which also comes through as you read these books. Ellis clearly was heavily influenced by the X-Files at the time. If not just doing that 70s Marvel steal the zeitgeist and make it your own thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, what was it? We're three issues from The Truth is Out There, and it's got bloody great teeth. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and... Call me a sucker for a character with a redemption arc. I always, always have been. I don't know what it is about that particular arc. Maybe too many viewings of A Christmas Carol as a (laughs) younger child. But there's something about that character who's trying to make good after being a bad guy that has appealed to me on some level or another from Jump. Mm -hmm. And Wisdom is that character more so than... Most other X characters, Logan, yeah, sort of, but Logan sort of embraces his bastardness. The stuff that he doesn't embrace is the stuff he was mind controlled to do. While Logan, when he's killed someone, it's like you know they needed killing. Wisdom seems to generally feel bad for even killing those who were probably the bad guys to begin with. Yes, exactly. And so, the, yeah, and he was funny and a a new character. I mean, granted, I didn't know Excalibur characters. I knew Excalibur characters from their trading cards. Yeah, no, exactly. Mm-hmm. When I came into, I came into Excalibur. I mean, again, we probably we we probably a little before this, like Phalanx Covenant, when it actually or Fatal Attractions. My first was seventy one. It was the Fatal Attractions tie in, but then I only stuck around. For the crossovers, so then, you know, I think I picked up, like, a couple issues of, like, the Douglock Chronicles. Right, because that was, you know, Legacy Virus, there was, you know, big news this was going to tie into the Legacy Virus, yes. Zero was there. Yeah. So it was those, and then, I don't know how the Ellis stuff came on the radar, but it did, because I remember reading mm-hmm. Soul Sword Trilogy as it came out. That He wasn't a hot name. He had, what, a Druid, Dr. Druid miniseries. Yep. And didn't he do, like, a little run on Thor? The Thor, was it around this time? Maybe World Engine? After? Yeah. And he did, I think he did uh, the Damon Hellstrom ongoing, the end of that. Oh, so I think, oh, I'm confusing Druid and Hellstrom. No, he did Druid as well. Oh, I think it went oh, from Hellstrom okay. into Druid, okay, okay. then this stuff. Like, they All gave right. him some weird... And I don't know if this was before or after Doom 2099, because he did the... the President about Doom that one. stuff. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that was all dollar bill. All right, polls. so he had a body of work at that point, but it was nothing that I was reading. No, no, I didn't read any of that stuff until years, years later when Ellis was a going concern and before he was not. An awful sex pest. Yes, or before we all knew he was an awful sex pest. Yes, thank you. Because, yeah. Good he, disambiguation. Yes. Because, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. That was, when you got, the, you look at that website, oh God. Yeah, yeah. It's bad. Very. He, he's bad. He's bad. Um, but yeah. So this is this is the stuff we were you know drawn to. This is the stuff we would talk about. Now, I don't. This is something I don't know that we've ever actually talked about on the mother pot. 
So back in that day, at some point, Matt and I started writing our own sort of X-Men apocalypse story. Uh, and it was, a, it was a trilogy, uh, you know, and, and the third part of the trilogy was sort of the aftermath, right? After the heroes have won, what do they do? And, and so you find mutants kind of working their way into the highest levels of government around the world. I honestly don't remember the full plot of, of the third. It had to do with... There was that. There was also war crimes tribunals. Because okay, it was okay. Bastion who had become the sort of body-hopping yes. entity yeah. possessing beings and setting up war crimes tribunals to try not just the humans who had collaborated with Apocalypse, but the mut- the surviving mutants who were part of the you know the the regime mm-hmm. and it was bastion sowing dissent and so because it set up bastion because apocalypse was gone so it set up bastion to be this sort of now immortal body hopping thing mm. so you could tell that we were probably right around operations or oh, run to ozt at peak late point. 90s yes yeah <laughs> yeah but uh, i i say that to say this uh much like excalibur num- uh number 17 Pete Wisdom became the Prime Minister of England. And we also had this running gag where he was still in a, a feud with Lockheed. And so the dragon would fly into Parliament uh, every now and again to fuck with him. And Pete would uh, have the laws rewritten so that purple flying dragons weren't allowed in Parliament. And so Lockheed would change colors, paint himself chartreuse, plaid, whatever it was. <laughs> Yeah. And somehow we knew that Pete and Kitty weren't going to work out because it's not like she was with him when she no. died in the, you know, because most of the X-Men got wiped out. This was, you know, pretty damn grimdark stuff. Yeah. It was, again, 90s. Yeah, we had the Sugar Man eat Bishop. Yes. I remember that. Yes. And, and, and Sabretooth just gleefully massacre Graydon Creed. That was... Yes. Oh, oh, boy, if we could only do that to Nazis now. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, so so good times there. But on to uh, what we're here to talk about. So previously, in Excalibur number 90, Pete and Kitty escape Black Air's clutches, meet a race of aliens who mistakenly believe they've attacked and dethroned God, and have sex in the back of a plane. Uh, Pete and Kitty, not the atheist aliens uh, that I'm aware of anyway. But with that out of the way, let's dig into Excalibur number 91, Baby I Love You, Written by Warren Ellis, drawn by David Williams, Mike Waringo, Jeff Moy, and Mike Miller. Inks by Miller, M. Christian, and Philip Moy. Color by Ariane Lynchweck and Malibu Hughes. Letter by Richard Starkings and Conancraft. And edited by Suzanne Gaffney. Uh, as a reminder from previous episodes, both Mike Miller and David Williams have dabbled in the dark arts of Comicsgate and Comicsgate-adjacent activity. And uh, again, Warren Ellis, awful sex pest, so many of us.com. But hey, Mike Waringo's here. Matt, why am I so excited to see Mike Waringo? Because Mike Waringo was great. Mike Waringo <laughs> was, I use the past tense, as he passed away tragically young. Yes, yes. Uh, was an artist with this jubilant style. Big grins, big characters, big action. Uh, in the X line, he's didn't do a ton of X work, probably best known for the Rogue miniseries that sure, he did. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, but he's really best known for work he did with Mark Wade. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Both a chunk of Wade's 
seven, I believe, year run on The Flash, and a good chunk of Wade's run on The Fantastic Four, including the issue where they meet God and God is Jack Kirby. Ah, that's pure and good. Is a classic issue. (laughs) But yeah, Ringo is, his, his work is a joy to behold. Think like those are the things that come to my mind. I'm, I know I'm missing a bunch of his work, but seriously, first appearance uh, of Impulse. Yes, he co-created Bart Allen. Uh, he did the incredible uh, Zero issue of Flash that spun out of Zero Hour that follows Wally unstuck in time, bouncing back along his own personal timeline, and eventually meeting himself as a kid and giving himself the pep talk that he needed. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a real, you know, tug at your heartstrings kind of moment, which Wade was good at, especially in that flash run. That mm-hmm. oh, that flash run. That's the... If you ever... Listen, if you're out there and you're a Barry Allen fan, just just read the, the <laughs> Mark Wade, Wally West flash and understand why those of us out there love Wally West as the flash. If you're out there and you're a Barry Allen fan, that's nice. <laughs> hey, you know what? <laughs> Barry's a great, great guy. Just, he was the the, the saint, the, you know, the, the departed saint of the DC Universe for 20 years for a reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Barry's kind of a square. <laughs> Still is. But yeah, Ringo is great, and from everything everyone says about him, is the opposite of, you know, everyone else involved in this book. At least three of the people yes, involved with this good book. good number of the people involved <laughs> in this book. Yes. Uh, I, I definitely, you know, thinking about Ringo, especially thinking about Impulse, you know, I feel like Ringo's style, and I know Humberto Ramos also had a lot to do with the physical development or the visual development of that character, but, you know, the the floppy hair and the oversized hands and feet and the giant eyes, you know, especially for a young character, it just, it's, there's an energy in that, that for people growing up in that period, I think is, is part of the reason why Bart is a, is a beloved character. Absolutely. Uh, I will give Ramos a bunch of credit because, and I don't, one of these things I've always wondered, I have to assume this was in the script, Mm -hmm. but in the impulse ongoing, while, you know, this was still the era of thought bubbles. Yeah. Yep. Bart never thought in words. Bart thought in little, almost proto emojis. Like Artie. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it, it were, it made sense because of Bart's literal lack of impulse control. Hence the name. Mm-hmm. He was raised in a VR environment because he was aging at an accelerated rate, so he didn't develop those cognitive skills. So he thought in little images, which was a great touch for the character. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, enough flesh talk. So uh, back back to Excalibur. So quick summary to get us started here. Taking a moment to unwind after Pete and Kitty's big dream nails story. They gave most of the rest of the team three issues off. Uh, Excalibur goes to a bar on the Scottish mainland and Pete and Kitty confess to the others that they are dating and that Pete would very much please and thank you like to join the team. So uh, the book opens with, you know, we've had the splash, the opening splashes have sort of been all over the place uh, since we've started covering Pete's adventures. But here we get this, this beautiful, well-colored, uh, page 
with sort of like a bay window uh, inside negative space. And, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to come back to this. I can't tell you what artist gets the credit, but I know that Ariane Lunchweck uh, is just using beautiful sunset hues here, just gold and purple and orange. And it's it's a great way to end the issue. You know, you get Baby I Love You in that sort of, I'm going to call it an I Love Lucy font splattered across the page. And then just Pete saying to Kitty, I fancy a drink. Sets up the whole issue right oh. there. But, uh, you know, it's funny. I remember, I think when we talked about issue 87 with Austin Gorton, some of the inconsistencies that were going on there, I think we're, we're seeing some of that again because there's there's things here where it's like Ellis forgot his own, lost his own threads. So, for example, Brian telling Kitty that the Midnight Runner has autopilot and that they can use it to to, you know, get home from the bar safely without, you know, Anyone have to worry about being drunk? Uh, well, well, hey, Brian's not going to drink uh, <laughs> for reasons that everyone knows, but he acts as, is not like is not is, is a secret. And B, uh, there there's a line here. There's an opportunity for me, for for Kitty uh, to be like, oh yeah, no, I know, we know all about that, the autopilot. And, and then we, oh why? Oh nothing. Yeah, exactly. And Ellis <laughs> is smart enough as a writer to have it be Doug Locke. Later on in the issue, who mentions to Brian about the drinking and Brian telling him that he's an alcoholic. Because Doug Locke would be probably the one person here, other than maybe Wisdom, who doesn't know. But why, yeah, it, Kitty would absolutely know about Brian's drinking. Yeah, it's just there's there's bits of, of continuity here that, you know, I could have very easily been slipped in or you know maybe ellis gets some gentle reminders uh going through um but it the, the other thing that's interesting is is be, there's a couple of instances in this issue of characters regressing you know who have had arcs that all of a sudden they are concerned about these things again and we'll get to it but with brian based on the way this issue reads and treats the, the, the non Pete and Kitty members of the team, it could have been very easy for Brian to have a moment where it's like, Oh, I hope I'm not tempted to, you know, to, to drink or get, you know, well knackered or anything. He's, he's fine. He's cool. He's a, he's a cool customer the entire way through drinking his non-alcoholic beer and everything's fine. And I don't know. There's, you could look at who see has that regression and who doesn't. And, and sort of read into that if you wanted to. The question of that is often, is it Ellis not caring or is it Ellis just not having researched? Yeah. And or is it Ellis having characters foisted upon him? It's so hard to tell, right? And, and, and this all started with him scripting over Scott Lobdell. That's what the Soul Sword trilogy was. You know, but he settled in here and he's brought his his self insert, you know, with him. How, After a certain point, you get comfy. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember since I hadn't haven't reread the earlier issues. Re How long ago did Rain come into the book? It's was it two ninety? Okay, was the, the issue before? Right, because that's the character that most feels, and we'll get to it more regressive. Yeah, and also the art for Rain is an odd choice, but we'll get to that as well. Yeah, so she's the one who I most feel he's kind of like, 
okay, well, they gave me this character, so now I need to do something. That's probably the biggest I- I- example. Yeah. And we're two issues away from what is actually a great Rain story. Yeah. But this issue, it very much feels like him not... He ages Kitty up, and he ages Rain down. Yes. Despite them being only technically supposed to be two years apart? I... Listen... Age, who can say, right? Yeah, Rain was the youngest of the New Mutants, and okay. Kitty was somewhere in the middle. So, because we see Kitty turns sixteen in Excalibur, so she, she was fifteen-ish. Uh, she has like clear birthday markers from nineteen eighty to nineteen ninety, whatever. Right, and Rain was, I think, thirteen, so she was probably a couple years younger than Kitty. It would be, it would probably be one at one year at mm. the most. Right, but yeah. they're clearly written as very, very different in age yeah. in this issue. Which, of course, lets Ellis do what he wants to do with 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 Kitty, and you know, in, pun, pun not pun not intended, but also yuck. Right. I mean, in, <laughs> listen, not not saying this in a way of for, of forgiving or excusing Ellis. No, but you have that you 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 do not have to hand anything to him. No. But a lot of that, part of that is definitely that Kitty was drawn, you know, if you didn't do the research, which Ellis clearly didn't, working off of illustration from the past couple of years of Excalibur, she looked 18. And that's the fault of comic book art in general. Yes. However, you should have done the research. You should have, and... Frankly, a nearly 30-year-old and an 18-year-old is in itself uncomfortable, even if she is of age. That said, she did spend her 16th birthday getting uh, frosting licked off her finger by Courtney Ross, or licking frosting off of Courtney Ross's finger. Something. One of those. Yeah, it's not like Claremont wasn't being a creep when it came to Kitty, too. So, yeah, mm. again, it's not exactly. no apologies or excuses to the noted sex creep. Yes. Just oh. saying that he is part of a larger problem. Yes, there we go. Um, and, then, and so then we get uh, a scene of, of Kitty uh, pitching pitching the pub to Kurt and Amanda. Which, and this is another interesting scene. So she walks in on them, and they're in the break room, uh, as if this were you know an office where they have have Jorbs, uh, you know, uh, like Jim and Pam just getting away from Dwight for a second. But they're they're at table not talking to each other uh both looking very like amanda's nursing a cup of coffee kurt has his tail flopped on the table now it's just it's a body language thing yes. right like if kurt were in a good mood and his tail were flopped on the table like that i don't think i'd question it but he, i i think that now there's no food on the table mind you it's just a cup of coffee which again makes you wonder why they're in why they're in the break room to begin with, there's a bowl of like random fruits uh, drawn on the counter, like a sort of basic art class thing. Um, but Sad Kurt's tail looks unsanitary. Yes, <laughs> yes, and weren't they? In, I mean, again, haven't reread those past couple issues, but I don't remember them. Be, I mean, their body language—they're sitting far apart at the table. They're looking away from each other. Are th- were they in a bad place right here? When she shows up in 88, which was her first time in the books. In- no, wait, hold the on. Soul Cur- Sword. 89. 
Uh, yeah, her first time since the Soul Sword trilogy. They're happy to see each I other. I thought so. Now, Amanda has an excuse. Rory just lost... Rory Campbell just lost his leg in the previous issue, uh, getting mad at, at Spore uh, and summoning the strength to rip off the, the leg of a of metal folding chair uh, somehow. Uh, and Amanda knew that she had saw had the vision of Rory becoming Ahab when Brian and Rachel did the body switch in 75. Right. Yeah. So she's got a secret, but Kurt doesn't know that she has a secret. Now, they could both be... You could make the argument that they're both bummed about Rory losing a leg, but I don't think Kurt really... It's not like Kurt and Rory hung out and they were bodies. You know? So, I don't know. I mean, again, it could be that she's suddenly being distant and weird and he doesn't know how to process it, but, but we're no prize. We haven't shown that scene at all. No, no, we're actually no prizing why they look like, you know, your typical sitcom couple after a fight. Yeah. I, also, in fact, I don't think we've seen, really, have not seen Kurt for most of the Soul Sword trilogy. Yeah, I, there's. I think there's the scene where Amanda shows up. I don't yeah. remember much else. Which, I mean, if you're a classic Excalibur fan, you're reading com- Excalibur comics without Nightcrawler. That, that's got to suck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Uh, so, they, but you know, eventually they, they convince everybody. Let's, let's all go to the bar. Now, rain has just arrived on the Island. She popped in in issue 90 said, Oh, Hey Moira, I left X factor cause the book got dark. Uh, I'm going to hang out with you for a bit. Uh, I hear you just been uh, moaning about having the legacy virus cause you know, your toast humes. <laughs> no, you don't have nine previous lives. Not at all. No, I'm sorry about our accents. Yeah, no. They're bad. Yes. But we're going to do them anyway. Damn right. Uh, <clears throat> but from get go, now, you know, she's upset about everybody going to the bar. Like, she just thinks alcohol, bad, and you immediately just get drunk and, and pregnant, which uh, feels like a stereotype of some kind. But the point is, like, this is very, like, early New Mutants reign. That's sort of, like, puritanical, she's processing trauma from the way she was raised by Reverend Craig type thing. But that was, let's say, 13 years of publishing ago. And, I mean, I'm not going to go and dig up the initial Peter David X Factor run, but I have to imagine, after missions with, you know, Guido and, and Jamie they were probably knocking a few back and it didn't bother anyone. <laughs> yeah, and she's... It, there's a lot of stuff with Rain here that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. The fact that she's in half-wolf form, she was cured of her ability or inability to morph back into human form mm-hmm. in X-Factor... 100. 100, yeah. And that was pre-AOA by a few issues, and now we're well after the Age of Apocalypse. So she should be able to look purely human. I wonder, like, excuse me, uh, I wonder if that's the artists wanting, you've got, you're you're juggling a lot of women in this issue, and you want to make them all distinct, but if if that's your excuse, like, Rain is a tiny thing with short cropped red hair you know I, so I'm not that's the best that's the best thing I can hazard yeah that or again just wasn't paying attention to continuity I, art, 
either way, art, art's bad, and we're gonna we're gonna come back to that. But uh, yeah, the the whole sort of like shrieking about going to a drinking establishment is very regressive. And her shock that Moira's father, Lord Kinross, owned a drinking establishment. You were her ward. And she grew up in Scotland. There are pubs everywhere. If you are a big landowner, of course there's a pub on your property. Yeah. He said as if he knew things about Scotland. (laughs) Uh, I've been to Ireland. There were plenty of pubs. And I know they're not the same by any stretch of the imagination, but I've been to parts of the UK. (laughs) And, and you know, it's the same in Wales, and it's the same in, in Great in, in England itself, there are a lot of pubs. And while I, I you know, we were going to go to Scotland for my 40th birthday, and then, oh wait, plague. Yes, yeah. Someday. A lot of us were going to do a lot of things for our 40th birthdays in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but Ray's not the only one here. You've also got Kurt pulling back to the, going back to the old, uh, oh, I'm afraid of going out in public without my image inducer. First of all, You've been on this island for how long? Where's the image? Where's your image inducer? Did 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 you lose it in the uh, mutant massacre in '86? I don't remember seeing Kurt with an image inducer during a lot of Excalibur. Yeah, after a certain point, you just started walking around and embracing your 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 sexy goblin uh, vibe. So you know, I don't think we need to replay that classic X Men backup where Wolverine dares you to walk out, you know, walk around without your image inducer. It is a great backup. Uh, there's also a weird art inconsistency here. You've just described the entire comic. True, but as as they get on the Midnight Runner, Kurt is in his costume. Like, You're, oh my god, I didn't even catch that. He gets that. to the next page, yeah. and he's in a turtleneck. A black turtleneck, yeah, did, like he's like a, a stage crew. Yeah, did Kirk just change in the Midnight Runner? Or is he like, excuse me, I'm, I'm just going to step into the back. The, the fashion inconsistencies, to go along with the art inconsistencies, are terrible. And there's a couple more that I had written down. Uh, Brian and Megan's shirts change color like they're hypercolor. And Wisdom's trench coat makes an appearance in exactly one panel and is drawn in such a way that it gives off a very specific vibe, which, uh, again, I will, I will come to later. But I will, yeah. And Kurt's turtleneck changes colors three times. In, it's purple there. It's, it's black here, it's red there, and it's purple there. There was one colorist on this issue. Yeah, I don't. I mean, there t- was somebody doing flats, but I mean, I don't know if or separations, highlights, like the the light catches it different ways. But that is an amazing magical turtleneck if it can appear as three different colors and like the black to either red or purple. Sure, because the black he's out in outside, it could be shadowy. But the red and the purple on the opposite opposing pages. That's yes. that's just lazy. Well, look at look at Brian's T-shirt too. So here it's blue here outside in the night. Mm-hmm. And oh. yeah, with a blue, get white with a blue axe. White with a blue axe, and then, but when uh, he first appears in the issue, it's white with a red axe. And then on the next page, it's yellow with a red axe. Yeah. So that, I, again, that might yeah. be the the quality of light in the pub making a white shirt look yellow. Oh my god. Okay. I, all right. So Megan, again. All right. So she's wearing. Actually, I really like this sweater. I was gonna bring this up in the fashion wash section, but she is wearing a very cool off the shoulder. It's like an X, and X made to look like the Union Jack, right? Yes. So, I mean, it, it's it's very sort of taking the elements of Excalibur and making it into a flash dance sweater, and I appreciate it. 
uh, you know, but then you get outside and the design disappears. It's just this sort of like blue thing. It looks like one of those freezy freakies gloves we used to have in the eighties. Yes. And then on that same page where Brian or Brian's shirt turns yellow, her shirt turns brown. That okay. I'm beginning to think that might be the ch- a choice to do with the color, the 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 pub that you know the lighting in the pub. I I guess, but does that mean dark yellow is brown? Because then, I mean, on the same page, Moira's tur- uh, turtleneck thing goes from yellow to green by the oh. bottom of the page. Yeah, look at that. All right, that's some weird-ass lighting for a dive bar yeah. in Scotland. I don't know exactly what is going on on this page. <laughs> uh, okay, but again, very strong coloring on the first page. Yes, this is a lot of, I feel like, those that early to mid-90s experimentation in computer coloring. Yes. And you get... All kinds of weirdness. Yeah, uh, no, ab- absolutely. They they were discovering computers and just just having fun, you know. I mean, just like Comic Sans, it just screams fun. Yes. Oh, and Kurt. <laughs> oh God. And it just get Kurt's turtleneck turns pure red when Ringo takes over as artist about two thirds of the way through the issue. There, and then in the bathroom scene, red. Brian's back to bluish. But again, With like a change in artist wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. It absolutely wouldn't. And Megan's back. Yeah, the, the sweater but it's looks the now right on way. the. Seem, oh yep, oh yep. That's okay. Yeah, this is wild. What? Yeah. Okay. What? Wild separations. Yes. I, I blame Malibu Hughes. We're we're gonna we're gonna be consistent in our praise of Arian Lynchweck and side eye Malibu Hughes for this. Um, but anyway, yeah, so Kurt's nervous about his image inducer. And one thing that Moira keeps saying as you go to the bar, oh, these are plain folk. They're not going to judge you. What is with this plain folk thing? Did, when did plain folk mean not racist? Which isn't to say that plain folk means racist. But it, it like, the, what? There, there were plain folk in the village that Rain grew up and Reverend Craig whipped them into a frenzy to, you know... Yeah. Plain folk grabbed pitch, uh, torches and pitchfork and chased Kurt out of his village. Right. I mean, granted, as we said, you know, city folk do the same thing. You know, like high flute and city folk too. It's any type of folk can be racist. Yeah. And not even necessarily even racist. Kurt looks like a demon. There could be religious folk who look at him and are just like demon. Yeah. It's not like he, you know, has some sort of, you know, an odd mutation that, you know, he's just got blue skin. Like, border, you know, normal human with blue skin or something. No! Pointed ears, forked tail. <laughs> there are a lot of people... Literal demon. Yeah, there are people who would react poorly to that, and it has nothing to do with race and everything to do with religion. Or any number of other things. But either way, the, the 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 barkeep and his daughter don't seem to mind. And that and that's good. Yes. <laughs> I'm just not saying it I'm just saying it doesn't have anything to do with them being plain folk. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and and also, this is the other point I'll add to this. If Kurt should be afraid of going out with it with it, without his image inducer, shouldn't Rain be afraid to go out not in wolf form in Scotland? Where she was literally nearly killed by a mob whipped up by her evil foster dad turned out to be her real dad? Yeah. Yes, we'll find out in two issues, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the whole thing is is just 
incon inconsistent. Uh, and then we have our, our third sort of weird uh, puritanical character in Duglock, who, you know, gives Brian the whole why do drink uh, speech, which... Yeah, it's an odd. That's an odd choice. I don't entirely know <laughs> to why. To the recovering alcoholic who's actually not drinking. Right. I don't entirely know why that page was in there because it doesn't do anything for the story. If there was something about it, with Brian talking about you know the temptation of things that are bad for you, and so there there might have been something to have that speech if it affected Douglock's arc in coming issues or Brian's arc in coming issues. But it doesn't. This is definitely the issue where Ellis is like, all right, I guess I've got to get back to the rest of the bloody lot of them. Um, I don't know, I just let's send him to the pub and we'll just, you know, see what shakes out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny because, like, I love this issue. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, like this is one of my favorite comics, it's... but I can see the flaws in it. Oh, yeah. It's got some <laughs> real fun parts to it. Uh, this issue would be about... Ten times better with one artist. Well, I mean that's that's true of any of the comics I've covered so far on this show. Yes, but especially this issue. Yes, because this is this is a character issue, and when the characters look different panel to panel, you're losing something in that. And when the artist is invested in the characters, yes, and it's not just handed to a bunch of dudes like, can you get this done? You know, Warren's behind on his script again. Can you get this done in like two days? Yeah, and and they draw it like they're signing their name on a check. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, Douglock has a mullet. Brian has a mullet too, but Brian has always had a mullet. Brian has always had a mullet. Brian's mullet is justified. Douglock is a techno-organic creature who chose to style his hair that way, and yeah. not the way, even though he's pat. He, uh, I'm not getting into the the lineage of Warlock here, but like Warlock used to ape people all the time, and it was adorable and cute and fun. Whereas Douglock is is specifically supposed to be this cold being in the shape of their dead friend. He sh he doesn't need a mullet. No. <laughs> um. Okay. Oh, this is this is a fun part. Oh boy. Okay. So there is a lot of of Scottish. Uh, brogue Scottish slang, uh, drunken Moira, just her accent coming in hot, and Warren just leaning all the way the fuck into it, like, like worse than Claremont uh, <laughs> ever was. So I was like, what, what, is, what does any of this mean? I, I can, can I get a, can I get a translator, please and thank you? And I found one. I found I I, I found an actual. Uh, there is a Scottish comics critic by the name of Rebecca Galt. Rebecca, thank you again so much. Uh, and I was just like, here, I, I, you know, I sent her some panels. I'm like, all right, what if this is real? And what if this is just Warren Ellis being a dick to Moira? Like he's been since the beginning of his run. So <clears throat> he's absolutely been a dick, but he's given her more to do than pretty much any writer in a very well, long time. That, and that also was an editorial dictum, right? Mm. The big thing was Moira has the legacy virus now. Now, and, and to be honest, so far, she has not done much more of it that than kind of mope about for a couple pages an issue about having the legacy virus and being totally human and sad about it. Except she's not. Yes, there you go. That's the joke. 
But anyway, Scottish. So it uh, starts off, Kitty sends wisdom to ask Moira uh, if she wants to go to the pub, which is just another, you know, great opportunity for wisdom to be a, a dick to Moira uh, as he's angling to join the team. But, uh, you know, she she's like, wisdom, I smell cigarettes. And, and he launches into just sort of mocking her uh, in, in thick Scottish words. And, and what he says, and I'm not going to do it with the accent, uh, is, uh, here we go. Och, I the new, jings crivens help my bo. Okay, there was an accent there. I apologize. It's hard to not do slang in some sort of accent. Yeah. So anyway, uh, jings crivens help my bo is apparently a generic exclamation of astonishment. Och, uh, I the new, according to Rebecca, is a phrase that it, it literally translated means, oh, yes, just now. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, when they get to the pub, Jack Crossan, the manager, uh, says, <clears throat> calls Moira Chikiwi Bawen, B-A-W-H-E-I-N. According to Rebecca, Ellis is conflating bairn and wean, which are different words meaning child. You know, although, I mean, for all, you know, it could be a regional thing. Who knows? Uh, and then finally, uh, we come to Moira's drunken rant when she's been uh, overserved toward the end of the issue. Uh, you know, clearly continuing to wallow in, in self-pity right after dancing on a table, I might add. But uh, I'll read the translated bits of it because uh, it comes with its own caption boxes. In, in Times New Roman, uh, no less, or a similar... Serif font, because again, mid-90s, Comicraft, got all these fonts, got to do something with them. Uh, what do you mean the bar is closed? I'd like a whiskey, and I'd like it now. I will be forced to beat you severely about the head and shoulders. Dear me, if you just come within reach of my hands. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, that one, that, that, the actual Scottish part, I feel like, if I read it aloud, I'd be committing an international uh, incident. <laughs> but, uh, again... Uh, Rebecca says it's it's right in some spots, but it's it's so heavily used and often mistranscribed that it does start to lean more into stereotyping. Which, again, uh, this is Ellis via wisdom. He's been taking the piss out of Moira from the start. God knows what Ellis's personal opinions are on the Scots, uh, so that tracks. Uh, but I, I I was curious thinking about this this bar that apparently was owned by uh, you know Lord Kinross. Moira's father and, and, and handed down and they gave it to the Crossins to, to run. You know, do you think the chalk and cheese reminds Moira of her first life? That simple life where she was plain folk, uh, you know, never left Scotland, got married, had kids. You know, I mean, maybe not now when she's a Terminator running around wearing people's skin for fun, but uh, in, in, in the simpler, quieter moments like this. It's so fascinating to go back and read old Moira stories and think about what might have been going on in her head during those stories. Especially during this legacy virus era where you you got to think, is she thinking, well, this is going to kill me and we're going to reset? Or is the, the thing that Destiny told her about you have 10 lives, 11 if you live right... Mm-hmm. Does she feel like, oh well, I'm going to find the cure because I was told I'm going to have ten, I'm going to have at least ten lives, and if I die of the legacy virus, and I'm guaranteed eleven, and I haven't lived this one right yet, mm. or she's just like, shit, I'll go get the golem. <laughs> <laughs> ah, boy. 
But, uh, you know, getting getting back to the art consistency also. So there's a scene where Kitty gives Rain uh, some kind of apricot drink. Uh, apricot or nectarine? Nectarine. I, I, I was going to go through. I, I think I was going to call it a peach bellini at one point, too. Hmm. So what, whatever it was, I fucked it up. But uh, on the ne- on the very next page, you know, after admitting, oh, this is quite tasty, and of course it's a virgin drink, you know, whatever. In the very next page, she's sitting with her... She's sitting with her arms folded in, in a group shot scowling. So, you know, much like the fashion in this uh, issue, pick a lane, Rain. Right. That, that's the first Waringo page. Waringo's uh, page I can pick out. Because it's that page through, I believe, the can-can is Waringo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, again, if he was given part of a script... Then, if he didn't have that page before, that page was altered or added in rewrites. Uh huh. Then, maybe as far as we know, you know, he didn't know any better, and Rain was supposed to be pouty. Again, not necessarily excusing even it's, Ringo. It's a mess. It's yeah. it's a mess. Yes. It, it, there's a good there's a good issue in there, but it's also a mess, <laughs> and you have to acknowledge that. I mean, it, none of these artists look similar. But none of them look so different as you're suddenly going from, like, Ken Lashley to Larry Stroman. And that's the thing. Like, these four are trying to do variations on David Williams. Because technically, in the absence of all those other artists, he's the guy. Right. And, And I think that's where even, like, Ringo disappears in this issue, right? Now, it, it, whereas in previous issues, Williams was in there, but Williams is in there with Ken Lashley, with Carlos Pacheco, with, La- with Larry fucking Stroman. That is, that is three artists who are all good, but also have their own distinct visual style. And David Williams is also there. Yes. I can tell the Ringo pages by the eyes. The okay. big... the. Ringo draws big, almost anime eyes, mm-hmm. and you can see it in Moira on the one page. You can see the body language and the look on Kitty's and Pete's faces as they talk to the team is a really Ringo sequence. Uh, the look on Brian and Kurt as they confront <laughs> Wisdom in the bathroom. Yes. And then Moira's eyes again as they can-can. Those are Ringo faces. I can tell that. But then you get to the next page, and it's... Maybe, but I don't think so because Doug Lock's face is not shaped like a Ringo face anymore. That's either Moy or Miller, and yeah. I, I couldn't tell you who, yeah. who's who. But the, the those pages jump out. the The Ringo pages are the only ones I can tell who is who. Yeah. But uh, so then we get to uh, Pete and Kitty at a jukebox. Now this is this is that one panel that I mentioned where the trench coat reappears and. It's like, the way it's drawn on him, it's like this big, oversized thing. He looks like John Cusack in Say Anything. Oh, hell scene. yes. He, that is like full Lloyd. Now, he's got he's got the shirt and tie and the, and the you know, uh, well-shined shoes underneath. But, I mean, those might as well be like baggy pants and like high-top sneakers. He might as well be holding the jukebox over his head, which is impressive because he's not super strong. Uh, playing Peter Gabriel's, uh, um, uh, no, wait, yes, in your eyes. Yes. 
Can I also call something out as we're, we're just Please call turning a page? Out. Do it, yes. So the, the letters page, for some reason, is inserted in the middle of this issue. It is, that's right. And so it's, it's that previous page, mm-hmm. right before this page. What is weird is that means you're reading the next issue blurb, theoretically, when you get Before here. you're getting to the last page right. reveal. Yes. So the last page has a reveal. It has Colossus showing up on the island as like a big, almost twisty moment. Yeah. But if you're reading the letter page... You've actually already seen the reveal. This is the wrong issue to drop a letter page early in the issue. Okay. Yes, and also, if you read the last couple letter columns before that, they tell you. They're like, they're not hiding anything. Colossus is coming. You know, and I don't remember what sort of the diamond solicit system was like back then, where, you know, if you were really invested, you knew what was going to happen three months out. Yeah, that would have still been the same at this point. Okay. Previews or whatever the equivalent from Heroes World was, because this was back when Marvel owned Heroes World and had their own distributor. Yes. Um, but that would have revealed that material. Yeah, but, okay. But, but, still. but still, you're spoil- you were, they were spoiling it right in the letter column. They were also telling people that Karma was going to join the team at some point. Huh. That never happened. That would have been interesting. It would have been, but I think at this point it would have to have happened under like Ben Rabb or something. Yeah, I mean, she shows up in Days of Future Tense, the the fu- the flash forward issue at ninety four. Oh, okay. She's Wisdom's major domo, like pushing him around in a wheelchair and oh, possessing people. Maybe that's what they meant. Maybe I forgot about that. I okay. It's it's funny. I think when I reread this run, I, I often like stick with Genosha to. Probably this issue. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... Because after this, you get a bunch of one-offs. You get the X-Man crossover. Yeah. And then Devil Under London. And then 101. 101's fun. 101 is... Or was it 101? 101 and 102 are both almost place-setting issues like this. Yeah, and then 103 is, like, the end of the Ellis run. And that's where that weird, like, Margali Zardos is fucking with uh, Pete Kitty and Kurt. Yeah. Or Piotr Kitty and Kurt, I should say. Yeah, and Pete confesses his love to Kitty. And Carlos Pacheco comes back for one last issue. Yeah. And and then the pod person shows up. Yep. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. So, here, they're at at the jukebox, and Pete uh, tells Kitty that he loves the Ramones. Uh, specifically uh, the song Baby I Love You, which is the title of the issue. So I went and dug up this this, this particular Ramon song because I wasn't super familiar with it. It's one of their Phil Spector songs. It's it's The Ramones were always heavily influenced by 60s pop and, and Motown, but this is like a straight Motown song. Uh, it, maybe it's a cover even. I'm not, I'm not you know, super familiar with it, as I said, but it doesn't feel very Pete. Or at least as I understand him today. Obviously, you know, Warren created him. I guess he would know. But, you know, Pete came of age, let's say, in late 70s to mid-80s. Yeah. Depending on how we want to play his age and probably not too far into the late 70s because, again, gross. Uh, Right. (laughs) But you're talking about sort of the height of or, or the come down of the British punk scene into... The, the the new romantic, new wave era of the early to mid-80s, the Ramones doesn't feel right to me. No. You know, I don't necessarily know that it would he'd be a Pistols guy. He's 
definitely too young for like the Oasis versus Blur to be. Uh, you know, and he's also a little bit too stuffed shirt. I don't know how into the new romantic stuff he would be, but I could see him listening to The Clash and Squeeze and Madness. And, and, and possibly, you know, crossing dimensions here, a little bit of mucus membrane, you know, the band fronted by one John Constantine. <laughs> But, you know, as I started listing these bands on the show notes, I was like, oh, well, I'm just going to make a fucking Spotify playlist. So I did. <laughs> released in John Constant Mucus Membrane, their song Venus of the Hard Cell, released in 1978. So he would have been probably a little too young for that, actually. There is That's act- canon? Oh, yeah. Constantine fronted a punk band. So that, that thing that Kemi Garcia and Isaac Goodhart are doing, like, that's that actually mm-hmm. happened. Oh, yeah. His buddy Chaz, the cabbie, he was the, the road man. For the band, that's oh how they God. met. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, there, like, there's um, I think it's an it's constant. It's uh, Hellblazer Annual Number One, where you actually see like the the lyrics of their big song like printed out like in a like a, a poster. Like there's a bunch of issues that are about Constantine's punk history. Uh, fun random fact, there is you know somewhere in you know the Morpheus's you know, library of unwritten books. Uh-huh. There's a fanfic set in the, you know, flashing back between modern times and the punk years of John Constantine hanging out with Rupert Giles when they were both punks back in <laughs> the 70s. Uh, because, you know, I love weird crossovers and, but I just don't have the, didn't have the time. And also apparently have things for characters created by really proper, well, I guess, no, because Constantine's fine. It's not like it's, you know, the original writer or Jamie Delano are problematic. <laughs> Just Joss Whedon. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh, but that's fun. Uh, but yeah, so I put together, it's like a 20 song playlist. I'll probably keep adding stuff to it. And also I completely got away from the theme of like, oh, he wouldn't, maybe not the pistols and maybe not all the new women. It's just a bunch of British pop music. So at this point, and, and then Baby I Love You, which is the first song and, and my least favorite on the mix here. But we've also got Rock the Casbah from The Clash, uh, Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division, uh, because we've all watched season four of Stranger Things by now, Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush, uh, God Save the Queen by The Sex Pistols, kind of unavoidable there. Uh, Pete Loves the Queen very much. Uh, China Girl by David Bowie, Our, uh, Our House by Madness, Pulling Muscles from a Shell by Squeeze, Tainted Love by Soft Cell, uh, I Melt With You by Modern English. Um, if You Leave by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Don't You Want Me by The Human League, Bizarre Love Triangle by New Order, There Is a Light That Never Goes Out by The Smiths, uh, my favorite song to listen to at ShopRite, uh, a song about dying in a car crash. <laughs> uh, such a wonderful way to die. Uh, <laughs> View to a Kill by Duran Duran, I figured, you know, James Bond theme, it's appropriate. Uh, America Is Not the World by Morrissey, which I know is later, that's mid-2000s, but still... Uh, in that same vein, Geezer's Need Excitement by The Streets, uh, Street Fighting Man by The Rolling Stones. I was trying to figure out what Stones song Pete would like. I, mm. I went with that. Uh, Eyes Without a Face by Billy Idol, Eminence Front by The Who, uh, which is the 1982 song and one I actually quite like. And then uh, because she's in, the, she's in the team at this point and get it, Day Tripper by The Beatles. Mm. You, there's... Um... You should check out the uh, songs in the key of X, the the music the from X-Files? inspired by the X Files, because there's some stuff on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unmarked helicopters, <laughs> uh, Red Right Hand, 
stuff like that that I could I could see wisdom like being very into you know some of that weird dark stuff. It's a good soundtrack for Department of Truth too. Yes. <laughs> oh, I just read the new issue of Department of Truth, the two week old issue of Department of Truth this morning. God, I love that book. I'm behind. I got to catch up on that. <laughs> I have so many PDFs open on my computer right now. <laughs> um, but then this is where I got to the part where I asked myself, and I don't necessarily, you know, why I was gonna I was gonna grab a Monty Python song off, you know, or maybe the Ruddles or something, and then I thought to myself. Does P. Wisdom like Monty Python because he's British? Or does he like Kids in the Hall because he's Generation X? Not British, but he would have come up around that same time. Mm. That's a good question. Yeah, because this is this is basically post-kids. So if you think about it, this is right as like news radio is starting. So you're 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 post-hall. So I feel like Pete would be of that age where like he spent his sort of young adulthood staying up till one in the morning to watch Kids in the Hall or however they showed it on the BBC, if they showed it at all. Makes you wonder. It also makes you wonder what Pete's feelings on Doctor Who are because this is in the fallow period of Doctor Who. Like we're talking late, we're talking seventh Doctor or even after. Yeah. I mean, he would have been around for some of the more peak Doctor stuff as a younger man, but... hmm. He probably would have had four as a teenager. Yeah, that's a good point. So he probably... Might have been, you know, peeking at Daleks from behind the couch kind of thing. Yeah. Although, as, as we'll, you'll eventually discuss, Harold Wisdom strikes me as the kind of guy who believes that there are subliminal messages in Doctor Who and it was best to not let his children watch it. <laughs> yes, that makes absolute sense. <laughs> oh, man. You know, and, and then, then I went down a dark hole because I was like, you know, with all the Scotland teasing in this book, I had a passing worry that someone could write a story where Pete is pro-Brexit. I hope not. I, 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 I don't want that. I don't think... Don't do it. No, I don't believe he would be. Because he's still... No, I just don't want to think about it. Like, he loves England very much, but I don't think he loves England in, in, in a way that like would make him hate the rest of Europe. Right. The, yeah, there's... there's You know, patriotism and nationalism. And Pete yes. strikes me as a patriot. Not a nationalist. He's Although that word is is like, oh. patriot is like loaded now. Yeah, we're recording this on the weekend that a bunch of uh, neo Nazis got arrested trying to break up a pride parade in what was that Portland? Oh uh, yeah, I I can't remember. Yeah, but that was Patriot Front. So I don't uh, think I like word is that word anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. Front. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I I think wisdom's not enough of a bullheaded moron. Yeah, he doesn't strike me as a Tory. Strikes you as labor? As, as, I don't know British parties. I'm I just know he doesn't strike me as a Tory. Okay. He doesn't strike me as a conservative. And that's where a lot of your Brexit comes from. That's true. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's comforting. You know, especially now that he can't go back to the mainland because he's a mutant, you know, uh, it probably would soften, further soften whatever their edges there are. Unless and, you're Celine. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Celine. So, Anyway, somebody pick up the thread about Pete and, and Strike wanting to take England back and make it great again. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, hey, Kieran Gillen just used Coven Akaba there, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, but he's also got a crossover to, to juggle. Oh, that's true. Yeah. 
This is a small plot thread. I mean, bring it up in X-Men Unlimited. Or, you know, maybe they'll finally subscribe to Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> be wisdom and I'll, I'll be there. Oh, man. Anyway, now I'm sad thinking about that drop plot line. But speaking of sadness and going to a bar, here's, here's another comparable. How does this issue compare to the episode of Community where they take Troy to a bar for his 21st birthday? Ooh, that's a good episode. It is. They're all good episodes, though. You know, gas leak year, not the standard. <laughs> There's a couple of episodes in the gas leak year that are pretty good. I think. It's been a while. I like the episode where the, the, the study group realizes they're the baddies. And they kind of go, like, it ends with them going around fixing things in Greenville. Mm. Yeah, okay. That, that is gas leak year. Okay, there we go. Yeah. This... If this were more consistent, it would be. <laughs> <laughs> if it, yeah, that's a, you know what that is a very good point. Um, yeah, I mean, on the whole, the message here is that Ellis is finding his footing, juggling the ensemble. He got to do his three issue story with the two characters that he really wanted to work with, and chop off another guy's leg, and and now he has to. He finally comes to accept. Oh, I also have to write. He has a very large cast. Yes, he's got Brian and Megan and Kurt and Amanda and Moira and Rain and Doug Locke. Uh, Rory, uh, you know, Spore. Uh, God, Spore's on the island. That's that's nine, and we haven't without Pete and Kitty, right? Without his favorite two, and all of the villains. You you still got to deal with villains. You still have to deal with Margalizardos. You still have to deal with the London Hellfire. Well, they haven't been introduced yet, but like Black Air, mm-hmm. he's still yep. out there. Cicluna and Threadgold are floating around out there. Yeah, exactly. But we're in this period now where he actually is, especially. Oh, and Colossus is coming. Oh yeah. So this is a huge team compared to, like, X-Factor or X-Force right? at this point. I mean, yeah, the X-Men are probably as big because you're in that period where you weren't out of blue and gold. Blue and gold have, have merged right. at this point. But pretty much every, you know, it seems like at least po- at that point with the, the core X-Books, it was like, okay, we're going to focus on a few X-Men here, a few X-Men there. They weren't trying to cram the entire team into every issue. Here, this issue, but... Generally speaking, moving forward, you were getting half to more of those characters every issue. Yeah. That's a lot of freaking characters. It's, it's, yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot of freaking characters, but he's going to kind of, Rain gets an issue coming up. Yep. And he kind of dives into the Colossus baggage right away, which I'm, I'm looking forward to tackling. But it's it's definitely different reading this as a, a teenager who hadn't read Excalibur pre-fatal attractions, and and rereading now at forty two, having read some of the Claremont run and listening to years of you know Jay and Miles and Battle of the Atom and you know Gosh oh golly, oh wow. And by the way, I, I've left the the issue sitting open in front of me, and yeah. we are on the page that I left it open on the letters the letter uh, no the, um, the uh, bullpen the page. bullpen page yeah. for X books. And so the the copy for this, the taps keep a flowing when Excalibur unwinds in an old English pub. It's Scottish. Yep. Call it a Scotsman in English and see what happens. Yeah. Not quite as bad as calling them Irish, but it's pretty close. <laughs> um, and if you think that's different and unexpected, will you see who shows up at the end? Boy, is Shadow Cat going to be surprised. And that happens after the letters call Oh my god, two pages after the letters column that says it's Pete versus Pete in an all-out no hold exactly. organic steel versus hot knife fisticuff fest. Yes! That's a lot of words. Yep, and, and the credits, by the way, are Warren Ellis and David Williams. 
Yeah, so they don't not, mention not the three other artists, right? <laughs> including the best one on on this issue. Yeah, the only one on this issue who had any rep at this point, because this would have been post Flash. Yes. Yeah, because Fla- he his Flash was ninety one ninety two, I believe. Because okay. it was the run up to Zero Hour, which was ninety two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, let's dive right or right back into, I should say. Uh, the art critique. Uh, just generally, this is bad art for a good issue. Uh, you know, and and they're all just kind of blocky in different ways. You know, Matt was able to pick out Ringo, thank God, uh, but I couldn't tell you who did the rest of the comic. You know, it, it's just, it's weird when William, they decide that Williams is going to be the house style that everyone else needs to follow. It's just unfortunate. Right, I mean, we're eventually going to get Casey Jones doing a good chunk of what's coming up next. Right, and, I think right after this. Yeah, I think he's probably 92. Because yeah. he does 92, 93, 94. Then you get Pacheco for a couple issues. And then... Yeah, Casey Jones shows up next issue. Right. And then it's it's it seems like it's almost Jones and Pacheco sort of handing it back and forth for the balance of the run with a f- couple other artists thrown in for the double-size 100. Yeah. Yeah, just a lot of characters in this book, and and yet inconsistent art. So it just the weight is in different places. If that if that makes sense. Yes. Um. But yeah, so let's let's get into some of the rest of the the categories here at the end of the issue. Uh, how many pages does Wisdom appear in? Fifteen. Even in an ensemble issue, it's a Pete <laughs> Wisdom world, and the rest of the team is just living in it. Uh, best words of wisdom. Uh, when Annie, the bartender, asks Wisdom whether he wants ice with his scotch, he replies, What are you, some kind of pervert? I thought this was Scotland. <laughs> uh, Matt, I don't know if you had a, a favorite line you wanted to call out here. Oh. I, 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 of Pete's or in general? Because in general. In, in general, general. I think the best bit is Kurt and Brian confronting Pete in the bathroom. Well, this gets, this gets to, to best insult. Ah. Yeah. So, there, which there's a lot of. This is a very mean-spirited issue in places. Yes. Uh, you know, on the whole, I found Pete calling the unconscious Rory Campbell Hopalong Campbell a yeah. bit meaner than that I'd was, like. That was, I, I read that too, and I was like, oh boy, I don't like that. Yeah. But uh, I, I did enjoy Brian and Kurt playing overprotective older brothers uh, and, and threatening wisdom with, uh, says Brian, I will, without hesitation, tear off your head. Followed by Kurt. I will spend days mocking it and drawing pictures on it before teleporting it into the North Sea. That's just fun. Yes. Wisdom's head covered in drawings of dicks bobbing in the icy <laughs> waters around the island. Because <laughs> what else are you going to draw on his head? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Scottish flags. <laughs> the, 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 the national flag of Scotland and Wales and Ireland. Uh, I, I heart France. I don't know. There you go. <laughs> uh, does he use his hot knives in this issue? No, uh, pretty much no one does. It is a no-powers-quiet-issue. All character, baby. I love quiet issues. Oh, they're the I best. I miss quiet issues. They're the best. We critically destroyed this issue. It's still great. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think we should say, I still really enjoyed this issue, despite <laughs> now realizing the problems with it. Yeah. Uh, um, does he smoke in this issue? Yes. I mean, he's going to the pub. What else is he going to do? <laughs> uh, all right. Fashion Watch. A lot of these we've talked about already, but uh, Pete spends most of the issue in his white button-down and tie, uh, except for the time his trench coat teleports in next to the jukebox where he looks like Lloyd Dobler. 
Um, but again, let's give credit to the other characters here. Megan has a fun off-the-shoulder sweatshirt with an X in Union Jack colors, uh, except when the colors change for inexplicable reasons. Um, Brian is also wearing, he's wearing a tight white t-shirt with a simple X logo, which, okay, tell me your feelings on this, because a part of me is like, why are you wearing that t-shirt? So, like, Excalibur is a book. At this point, it's, well, it's it's firmly an X book, whereas as before it was a British-set book that included mutant superheroes, if that makes sense. Yes. You know, but once they did Fallon's Covenant, I think all bets were off. Uh, you know, I, I just, there's there's a bit here where it's like, oh, you know, we did a Fallon's Covenant together. I'm an X-Men too now. Uh, that's not Brian. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't have that. Brian's got to have a little bit more posh, and I'm, I'm, I'm failing it, and I apologize to... The, all our British listeners that we don't have, uh, you know, and and also he was he did fly to the states for Oliana's funeral and Scott and Jean's wedding within the last year or so of indeterminate comic book time, but you know he's he's as X Man as like Tom Corsi, yeah, or Alistair Stewart. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure. I think it's just. It's probably fine. I don't think anybody would raise an eye at him. I just, you know. No, but it's it's just there because it's a distinct look. And, you know, there's other characters. Rain has an X on her shirt, too. You, As you said, you got Megan. I think uh, that... Well, was... Rain lived, grew up in oh, the mansion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm just saying that, you and, know, it's like... And Megan's a mutant. Right. <laughs> Although, yeah, I, I guess at this point she was because it kept changing. So... It did. It did. But, I mean, now she is considered a mutant. Yes, Absolutely. Brian's just a, a, a bag of meat who hangs out with me. Yes. <laughs> now, his he sister's deserves, mutant. That is true. His twin sister and is his a brother. And his brother. Yeah. Th- 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 this is a mutant ally shirt? Maybe there's a, a color of X that represents you as an well, ally? Well, no. That, there's, that definitely doesn't work, especially because Brian, the X on Brian's shirt changes colors like Warren's angel costume. That's it's true. It's red. It's blue. Pick, pick one. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, mutants wear mutant clothes. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, we've already talked about Doug's uh, techno-organic mullet. Uh, is Wisdom a good guy? Is the question I've asked every episode. I mean, I, by now I don't think we need to answer that anymore. I mean, he's on the team. They've bonded over booze. He's family, like an Olive Garden patron. Uh, but, yes, letters. We've talked about the letters page, but we haven't talked about the letters themselves. Uh, we've, got, we've finally got some proper... Uh, correspondence regarding Mr. Wisdom. Uh, this this first one comes from Erica Burke of Charleroi, Pennsylvania, who says, when you pulled Pete Wisdom into the book, I had to write, please don't get rid of him. He is a breath of fresh air. This man who smokes cigarettes is a breath of fresh air. <laughs> At first, I thought he would be a cheap gambit ripoff with the trench coat and all. Pete Wisdom has a lot of depth, and his great mutant power is just a bonus. His great mutant power that is drawn differently every single issue <laughs> by a different artist <laughs> yep uh and then uh, lady fukada of hawaii writes pete he's pretty cool are you going to keep him around or just write him off after the story please keep him so he's got fans he's got lady fans <laughs> oh peace <laughs> so there is that Ah, uh, it's it's not just two teenage geeks in Union, New Jersey, ranting about him in the raving about him in the library. Ah, <laughs> uh, boy! And then uh, we get to go through the ads. I love going through the ads. Oh, the ads! Uh, we got we got Clearasil really just building a house and moving in in this era. 
Uh, you have a contest ad wherein you can get boys to men to perform at your school. Uh, you've got all new Exiles versus X-Men again. Uh, here to remind us that Ken Lashley uh, found what at the time was considered a higher profile gig. Uh, drawing the further adventures of Sienna Blaze and Reaper from the uh, MLF. Uh, and Juggernaut. <laughs> and Juggernaut. Yes, exactly. That's the start. But that's, that's the level of starting. Not to mock the Juggernaut, but that is the A-list character of the book. Um, you've got Spider-Man Fruit Roll-Ups back again. You've got a big two-pager for Virtua Fighter for the Sega 32X. We are we are at that part of the 16-bit wave where Sega is just turning the Genesis into a cyborg with all this external hardware. The the Sega CD, the 32X. You know, you gotta you, sh- you gotta shove a Game Genie in there. It's 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 crazy. Uh, this also this advertises a Virtua Fighter training pack that comes with a T-shirt a coupon for $20 off the game, a VHS cassette promising ticks, tips and tricks, uh, and entry into a contest to win a Virtual Fighter arcade unit, which would be superfluous because you have the, con- the the console game. Or the arcade cabinet's probably better, and that makes the console game redundant. But also, it's taking up space in your basement, and your mother's like, get this thing out of my house! Um, Mile High Comics, featuring its mascot, Captain Woodchuck whom I content- commented on Twitter, has oddly well-sculpted arms. Yes. Look at those things. Really He's got Popeye by forearms. Oh, that guy's got some guns. Like That's not even bicep workouts. That's like that thing where you just take the small weights and you do this with your wrist. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to going to Denver for a conference in a couple months and Ubering my way to Mile High Comics to... Be able to check it out if it still has a physical storefront. Who knows? I think it's just Chuck Rosensky alone in a warehouse. Yeah, I do too, which is a real shame. I'm but a... It, but if you go, check out his forearms, because I want to see if Captain Woodchuck was based on <laughs> Chuck Rosensky. <laughs> um, where are we? Oh, yeah, uh, sculpted arms. This better not awaken anything in me. Uh, the movie <laughs> Strange Days, which I don't remember at all, but the ad includes writ large the website http colon slash slash www because you needed all that at the time because nobody knew what the goddamn internet was strangedays.com which no longer works i tried i love that i love many years ago my guess not yeah it was many years ago because it was like early 2000s reading comics from the late 80s i remember reading denny o'neill's the question and uh vic sage's mentor and tech guy uh taught aristotle roter telling explaining the internet in the issue and i'm like why do you need this? oh right why? this was 1989 yeah you did need this that's one of the things i don't know if if you watched uh, pam and tommy on hulu no i haven't it's yet. great you should check it out if you ever uh have a little extra time eight episodes it's it's tight but part of it is the idea that nobody really knew how the internet worked even in like mm. 1995 and how the sex tape, Pam and Tommy sex tape, proliferated on the internet. And that was one of its big sort of success stories isn't the right word, but like how it kind of broke through to the mainstream. And so you had to explain, you had to have like Seth Rogen, somebody explain to him how the internet works. And, and just scenes of characters like, like, like uh, Tommy being like, get it off the internet. You, you can't get it off the internet, man. Once it's up there, it's staying up there. It's everywhere now. Oh, what a word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and to the point where it becomes so popularized that, like, Jay Leno's making jokes about their sex tape on Late Night, which was, you know, 
I don't want to say like huge or groundbreaking, but like that's how it happened then is the point. But uh, the final ad on the back, uh, Peak 1995 Energy is a magic eye puzzle ad that I could never solve. No. Never see the goddamn sailboat for Kevin Smith's Mallrats. My favorite of the early Viewisk Universe uh, films. It, 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 I don't know what happened if it holds up, but it <laughs> remains damn fun. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I was talking to someone not two days ago about Clerks the Cartoon, trying to explain <laughs> Clerks the Cartoon, because I had we had been talking about something and something about freaks came up. And I was like, uh, have you ever seen Clerks? They're like, what? I'm like, no, no. Go, they, 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 there's a whole thing in Clerks the Cartoon with the, the, the pinheads. There's a Clerks the Cartoon? Yes. It was only six episodes. <laughs> and only two of them aired. <laughs> Got that DVD. Sweet, sweet DVD content. You could tell who watched that show when it came out because they understand the phrase, who is driving, oh no, Bear is driving. <laughs> Every now and then I see that come up and it's like, wow, I guess we weren't the only two people who watched Clerks the Cartoon. <laughs> they made a DVD, so it had to have been more than two people. I own that DVD. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it was a two-disc set for six episodes. Yeah, I mean, it was the early days of DVD. That's that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. I, I bet there was... I, there, I'd have to go back and look at it, but I'm sure there were commentaries and things that took up space on those early DVDs. <laughs> well, there was. There was a framing device of, of Jeff Anderson, uh, Randall from Clerks, uh, claiming that he lived in a mansion and sort of introing the cartoon. Then it turns out he was just cleaning the pool and I... Was it Kevin Smith's house or maybe it was Jay and Silent Bob's house? It was a whole skit bit. Okay. <laughs> I kind of go back and rewatch that sometimes. I remember. I, I, you know, if just for Bear is driving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth it just for Bear is driving. It, it, it really is. But yeah, Mall, mall Rats, uh, one of Kevin Smith's better ones. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting to the end here. Uh, Matt, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. Uh, as if our listeners probably don't already know. But I'll ask anyway, how can people follow you online and support the things that you are doing? Well, uh, your, your best bet for me, social media wise, would be Twitter, where I'm at Matt, ah, where I am at MattLaz1013. That is not something I designed to ever be said out loud, <laughs> uh, where I spend most of my time talking about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats. Uh, you can also follow my other show, uh, Bat Chat with Matt and Will, my Batman ranking podcast at Bat Chat Comics. And all of that stuff is off of Comics XF. So you can go and see me on Comics XF and my Friday Bat Chat uh, column, my occasional Kickstarter Q&As, my monthly reviews of Saga with mm -hmm. Mark Turetsky, and all the other stuff that I occasionally put out there and all the stuff I edit. And yeah, uh, and come back for more WM Q&A because yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> but uh, next month, Colossus comes to town and beats the ever-loving shit out of my son. Uh, hopefully, I'll find a guest who can spend an hour talking shit about Piotr uh, in turn. But uh, that's it for now. Until next month, listeners, sod off, Torag. <laughs>